0: wonderful people and welcome to yet another episode of Fuds on Film. This time we're going to be looking at time travel films which have been pretty common um, from perhaps the second half of the 20th century onwards, a real staple of sci-fi genre and amongst some of the most cherished films of all time, Lights of Ground Day and Back to the Future, have been based on time travel of one sort or another.
1: And so many direct to VHS classics that (laughs) we'll be discussing.
0: Yes, there's also that. Uh, (laughs) uh, As we've perhaps mentioned before, one of our missions on Fuds and Film was for was to broaden our cinematic horizons for us and for you, dear listeners. And so, and it's a drum I've particularly beaten that to try to avoid, for the most part, English language films, because, you well, know, that's easy. And it's too easy to get into a groove and not explore other cinematic culture. Hmm. To that end, I have... Well, because I will... If you want to blame anybody for this podcast, it's me, because I chose all the films and Scott didn't seem to complain too much. Um, <laughs> which is... Um, fair enough, when I mean, that gaffer tape's quite strong. Uh, <laughs> but I went for, not willfully obscure, but certainly lesser-known time-travel films for the most part. Just yeah.
1: to... just it's to not the diff- obvious ones, is yeah, it? It's not, exactly. it's not Terminator, because we've already talked about Terminator, I'm pretty sure. And, yeah, Terminator,
0: think, yeah. And there,
1: there's no particular need to explain that franchise to anyone anymore. No. Um, but
0: uh, And yet everybody knows Back to the Future, which is fine because Back to the Future is a phenomenally entertaining film, and most of the trilogy, in fact, is pretty good. Mm. But yeah, we just wanted to be a bit different, uh, not so obvious, and just hoping that it was something we would find interesting and th- therefore we could recommend it to you. So we've got quite a broad scope of things. Again, this is quite um, deliberate. We have got a range of languages, a range of countries, a range of decades, and quite a different range of the approach to time travel. Now, some of these films, one in particular, I chose simply because I really like the name of it. Now, <laughs> uh, we'll soon find out whether that was a good choice or not. <laughs> yeah, so, but, you know, rather than just going for our traditional stuff, uh, we've got something from so, uh, communist era Czechoslovakia. So we've got Central Europe. Before that, we have Western Europe with France in the 1960s. We have Japan. We have the United States a couple of times. And we also have Spain, in the 2000s. So, you know, pretty good range of things there. Just to be a bit different and see whether different countries approach it differently or there's a different aesthetic or maybe the idea of time travel is fairly similar throughout because a lot of time travel work is based on, you know, just a couple of fairly early sci-fi stories like Mark Twain's A Connecticut Arthur... A Connecticut Arthur? (laughs) A Connecticut (laughs) Yankee in King Arthur's Court and... The, the seminal work which is H.G. Wells' Time Machine, the, the work which in fact coined the term Time Machine. Uh, so, you know, we we'll see whether those influences carry on through or whether people try to do something novel. And yeah, I'm wittering now, so to stop me wittering, <laughs> uh, we shall move on to the Soviet... Or, I can't say Soviet, sorry, it's not Soviet, but Communist-era Czechoslovakia with Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea.
1: Yes, so you you not out of trying to say Zitra Vistanu at Oparum Sekajim maybe
0: I'm quite willing to give most things a will
1: no, a go but, I,
0: I, but I, I'm much happier with romantic languages and know how to pronounce things with Slavic languages I'm yes. kind of stuck to be honest <laughs> I don't have enough knowledge to give it a good go I'll accept your, your attempt Scott it seemed reasonable enough
1: <laughs> it seemed cromulent yeah, yeah. Um, so th- th- <laughs> tomorrow I'll wake up and scald myself with tea as part of that glut of late 70s Czech time travel comedies <laughs>
0: <laughs> with
1: Nazis uh, I'm sure you're as tired of hearing about them as I am as writing about them. So I'll keep this brief as I can't imagine anyone listening to this isn't intimately familiar with it already. But on the off chance you've been living under a rock for the past 40 years. Uh, We're introduced to twins Jan and Carol, one a mild-mannered engineer who invented the process of time travel and used it to set up a chrono-tourist business, the other a brash, womanising drunk, and also pilot-slash-astronaut of the spacecraft used to bend time to her will. His reckless lifestyle leads Carol into financial difficulty, making him an easy target for a group of Nazis who have hatched a plan to take an advanced weapon back to Hitler mid World War Two to change the course of Hitlery. History. Hitlery? Hitlery? <laughs> uh, change the course of history. Hitlery? Ooh, um, evil Hillary
0: or something, blah, blah, blah. No.
1: Emails. Yes. <laughs> it's always the emails through. Fantasy. <laughs> There are safeguards against such things, of course, but the pilot can override them. Uh, Finding this less risky than a payday loan service, Carol (laughs) agrees to sell his soul to the Nazis. Not long after, he chokes to death on a roll. While Jan's, upset, yes, while Jan's upset by his brother's death, he also sees an opportunity to make a change to a life that he's finding mundane and unfulfilling. He assumes Carol's identity and all of the hassle that comes along with it, with angry husbands being the least of it. And before long, he's an unwitting Nazi accomplice trying to foil their plans while keeping himself alive. Now, being a comedy, there's a fair amount of bumbling ineptitude from everyone involved, leading to a nicely convoluted final act <laughs> where there's something of a do-over with multiple day-apart versions of people flailing around. Uh, the exact of which I think I'll leave to the interested uh, but it would be cynical to say that we chose to cover Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea purely on the strength of the title cynical but entirely accurate <laughs> entirely <laughs>
0: accurate yes, we cannot tell a lie <laughs> um,
1: it being up there with Uncle Boon Me who can recall his past lives as needlessly specific titles go <laughs> uh, apparently this is something of a cult classic in the UK following a terrestrial TV showing some decades back now I had never heard of this film, presumably for the reason that, hipsterism aside, it's not all that remarkable a film. I mean, it's fine. that The high-level concept is good enough and there's enough chuckles raised throughout that I don't think I'd wasted my time watching it, but is it worth, hypothetically speaking, registering on Czech-language piracy message boards to hunt down a copy? Probably not. <laughs> uh, it does have quite a good soundtrack, though. In the admittedly astronomically unlikely event that you stumble upon an easily accessible copy of this and you're in the mood for some light knockabout comedy and I suppose also the disturbing increase in actual Nazis knocking around these days hasn't put them into the no laughing matter category for you. It is an enjoyable enough watch. uh,
0: This is yet another thing to add to the canon of time-travelling Nazi shenanigans um, that is consumed... (laughs) A distressingly
1: large part of my life, uh, <laughs> including uh, not practically, I assume. Just uh, you're not actually out there time traveling with Nazis or no? Mostly them, or... In the
0: entertainment state, Scott. Because ah, okay. um, whether or not it makes it, it's, it's my preferred title for this episode. But there is a point and click adventure called Time Gentlemen Please, a sequel to <laughs> Ben. They're done that which is both incredibly funny and also features time-travelling Nazi robot dinosaurs. Um, So (laughs) it's a nice companion piece to that really, because it does also (laughs) mention dinosaurs and there's time-travelling Nazis. So it's all good. Uh, (laughs) And also if you like point-and-click adventures, check out Ben there, done that and Ben there, Dan that, sorry, and time gentlemen please, because they're great and really funny. Nothing to do with (laughs) anything, but I just like those things. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you're right, Scott. It's not anything special. It doesn't do anything that other time travel films haven't done. Mm. I'm sure other things have, in fact, had bumbling Nazis, uh, which is. Do you know what? I'm not actually sure whether I feel the same. I know a few years ago I thought that sort of making them look silly was a good way to deal with them.
1: Mm.
0: I'm slightly less well convinced of that now. But yeah. it's certainly something you could have a conversation about. And remember, this was much closer to the time. So yeah, imagine yeah. that the Nazis had supporters in Czechoslovakia, what is now Czech Republic and Slovakia, and also they did bad things to that country too. So in only 30 years after the end of World War Two, maybe a bit more raw. Yeah. So it's it's a very different take on it and you can understand why it would be different. That said, yeah, it's still, it's, yeah, I, I suppose it's difficult to say anything of any particular substance about, but it is quite interesting there is this strange thing though, I, I noticed in this film, I've noticed in several films before that while this is a 1970s film, by date it's pushing the 1980s, but it feels more like it's actually from the 60s end. Yeah. Uh, which, <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's like Eastern Europe, and this is Central Europe, it seems like Eastern Central Europe kind of lagged behind
1: yeah, Western yeah. cinema
0: by about a decade in terms of the aesthetic um, and possibly even just a film stock, because that plays such a large part in how a film looks. So it did feel like it was more like from the end of the 60s rather than the end of the 70s. Um, yeah,
1: I was thinking that, actually. It did look an awful lot more like uh, Je T'aime, Je T'aime than uh, something else that would have been around that era kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. Exactly how I thought about it, Scott. It, I mean, that, again, it's nothing to do with the film. It doesn't make the film any better or any worse. It's just an interesting sort of aesthetic thing. It was like It does feel like, in so many ways... The look of it is lagging about, um, tracking about ten years behind. Yeah, but that said, there are some, okay well, the special effects aren't good, but I can't imagine it had a particularly large budget. Yeah, but the some of the interiors, like the this house where the the conspirators meet at the beginning, mm-hmm. felt considerably more modern than what have expected from you know nineteen seventies communist Czechoslovakia. That, yeah. That's possibly just my ignorance about exactly how 1970s Czechoslovakia was, but it surprised me, uh, whereas yeah, the rest of it felt...
1: Well, I was thinking more, that was a sort of mid-70s Czech take on what the future is going to be, which felt like it was a sort of 1950s version of what the future would have been in an American film. <laughs> Maybe, so it's still yeah. lagging behind so the that possibly, regard. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the other thing is, again, my, my knowledge of 1970s Czech cinema may just be this film actually because I can't immediately bring anything to mind Uh, uh, my knowledge of 1970s Czech pop culture may just be this and that Czech rolled video that was very popular on YouTube maybe seven or eight years ago (laughs) with that um, guy that looks a bit like Willie Rushton doing his amazing shoulder shrug Uh, and if you don't know what I mean get onto YouTube right now and look up Czech rolled because it's fantastic but Again, maybe this is just, I don't know if this is my foolishness, my ignorance, or it's just the way that we're always, or have always been presented with the image of Soviet era Warsaw Pact countries. Hmm. We always get the impression that everything was miserable all of the time. <laughs> Whereas yeah. this isn't. It's lighthearted, it's fun. The people in it are clearly having fun, it's um, full of jokes. And it's not the sort of grim, nasty idea you have of
1: Soviet-type cinema. Which, yeah, um, it's, it's certainly a very different view from behind Iron Curtain as to what we'd been presented with. Exactly, on yes, this I, side of it,
0: yes. I don't know. I don't know if it's like that. This is in fact not representative, or <laughs> that what we have, what we grew up with. Um, it's like the way things were presented on news and documentaries and stuff was like well, actually that wasn't representative. Yeah,
1: um, I'm pretty sure it wasn't because I think oh, even with it, it sounds like uh, the propaganda from our side of things would be that most Soviet film and that side of the uh, political divide film would mainly be about queuing for bread. <laughs> <It's>, that seemed to <laughs> yeah. the general impression of it.
0: I mean, and I've seen plenty of really miserable Russian films, but, yeah. that, um, but maybe that's just the ones that made it out um, and got popular. Right? It's not, mm-hmm. again, not necessarily indicative of what was happening. But this is kind of a knockabout comedy. It's sort of a farce in some points, but you know what? I would recommend this just for being something different to watch. It's a time travel mm-hmm. comedy from 1970s Czechoslovakia. How many of those have you seen? Yes. One. <laughs> <laughs> it was like one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the, le- the lead, uh, Peter Koska, is really pretty engaging guy. He's got a good comic turn, good mm. comic timing. And he plays because he plays two roles in this film and he does it really quite well
1: yeah yeah. you know what I thought was mostly impressive is that they do a reasonably decent double in for a lot of the shots and it's not really obvious yeah when, uh, for, for a lot of that so that's actually quite well blocked and handled from production side I mean there, there's one pretty ropey split screen um, kind of mirroring effect later in the film which is well, at some point on it, which is bad. I think it wasn't. That. I think it was actually when there was two versions of him walking going around rather than him and his twin. Not that it makes any difference to the visuals of it. I suppose. Um, yeah, that was a bit ropey, but the rest of it was actually pretty well executed. Okay, the the the, the tr- spaceship traveling things a bit button boon, but it's other than that, thing <laughs> it, it, it services for what it needs to do, um, and um, yeah, it, it's fun. It's, as I say, it's, it's not groundbreaking or epoch-defining or anything like that, but yeah, it's certainly something different. So on that basis, yeah, I have to recommend it, yeah. Next up on our list will be Time Crimes. Time crimes.
0: Yes, then. The time travel mechanic in Nacho Vigalondo's Los Chronocriminis Time Crimes, is similar to that of the more traditional grandfather paradox type though in a massively compressed time frame where travel to in your life causes unforeseen and hugely undesired consequences. Cara El Halde plays Hector, a pretty average middle-aged guy who is in the process of moving into his new house with his wife. Sitting in a deck chair in his back garden and idly using binoculars, he sees an attractive young woman in the woods at the edge of his property. This woman proceeds to take off her shirt and... For some reason intrigued by this, he decides to investigate while his wife goes to buy food. In the woods, Hector finds the woman naked and unconscious, but before he can check on her, he is stabbed in the arm by a mystery assailant, a man in a trench coat with his face shrouded in pink bandages. Hector flees and eventually finds himself inside of a laboratory underneath a building. Here he finds a walkie-talkie and begins talking with someone who tells Hector that he can see his pursuer on the security monitors and instructs him to exit the lab by the rear and make his way up the hill to the silo, where he will be safe. Once inside the silo, Hector meets the man behind the voice, a young scientist, played by Director Vigalondo, doing extra work on an experiment while everyone else has gone home for the weekend. He instructs Hector to hide inside of the large tank in the centre of the room, where his attacker won't think to look for him. The lid of the tank closes and just as soon opens again. The scientist is still there, but the attacker is gone and, despite night having fallen by the time Hector arrived at the silo, it is now daylight. What is going on? Well, though he's unwilling to believe it at first, Hector has travelled back in time. By about 80 minutes! And things are about to go. In the parlance of our times... Tets up. <laughs> this is one of the films I've been looking forward to most, actually, and it was actually this film that had prompted me to want to do this episode. Mm-hmm. Buggered if I can remember why now. Of course, it's, <laughs> it's so long ago, so I heard about this and thought it was really interesting. And I'll admit, for about the first forty-five minutes, I was a little disappointed. It wasn't doing an awful lot for me, but then I found it actually built really, really successfully, and in the end, I found it really, really wor- rewarding. It's kind of... It's got some time travel sci-fi stuff, but there's also a bit of a, a mystery and a bit of a thriller element to it, and possibly even yeah. some say, touching on horror bits. Yeah. And I just found it really rewarding. Cara El Halde is an actor who I think I've only previously seen in Tambien La Juvia, Even the Rain, which you and I both very much liked. We did that on our Social hmm. Issues podcast, and I've liked him a lot. He uh, plays a very good ordinary guy yeah, who responds in a particularly believable ways to the crazy stuff that is going on around him.
1: I, I liked this film overall. I think mainly I did like it because of Eraldi's performance. He's he's quite likeable. It's easy to engage with on this film, which I think is fortunate because a lot of the time I was watching it, I kind of swung back and forward as to whether this made perfect sense or he was just making the stupidest decisions possible at any one time. Because there, There's points of it where you know, he, he's told at one point in early, early runnings that um, if he doesn't... If things don't happen the way it happened on basically another, another cycle through it, then he's possibly going to erase himself from the timeline, which I think really is the only justification he can have for doing a lot of the things that he does. Because when you think of it that way, it probably doesn't make sense in a in the terms of the paradox that it sets up, I'm not entirely convinced that the logic works if you think it all the way through, but it doesn't really matter. Um, it's still quite an entertaining film for all of that. But, um, yeah, I mean there's no real reason he should pick up a trench coat from the garbage apart from the fact that he'd, he'd seen it before, you know what I mean? Things like that. It's just uh, some of his actions are only explicable by the fact that it needs to occur for a film to happen. So it's a bit strange in that regard. Um, but I, it didn't stop me enjoying it, so...
0: I feel like it's been a little ungenerous to... It. Is that a word? T- I feel there should be a different word that means the opposite of generous, but I can't really think what it is. I think it's ingenu. Ingeniero. <laughs> it's very engineer. Um, <laughs> no, um, I think that's been a little unfair because I felt like the way I, I looked at it was that at first he is somewhat confused and certainly massively disbelieving, but it felt to me like that while his character's no genius, his character's not stupid either, and that he's he's beginning to put the pieces together, um, which is why he picked up the quote. Co- I didn't feel like it was... It was when I saw him, he picks up that trench coat, it didn't feel to me like he was, oh, I'll just put this trench coat on. It's more like he saw the trench coat and had already made the connection in his mind. It's like, oh, right, okay, I know I need to do this now. I felt that, like he was
1: yeah but that's the thing right if it, it's always this discussion you get of time travel if he didn't do that in the first instance why would he be doing it now it, it, the loops of it when it gets <laughs> recursive like that I don't think make sense when you think of it from the view of the first time through but maybe I've just not sat down with a pencil and mapped it out well enough. You know what I mean? I've maybe just not sketched the timelines accurately enough because it gets a bit messy. Uh, that, that, I think it's, it's well handled. I think it, you you can always really tell what's going on and what the intent of, of the, mm. the story is meant to be. And so in that regard, I don't mind it because it's, it's, doing, it's doing it well on its own terms. I think in... In absolute sense. Maybe it doesn't make it, but then again, it's about time travel. So, you know, <laughs> this is the sort of thing you wind up dealing with. So, so you have to uh,
0: cut it some slack. Um, and yeah, normally that is the sort of thing that bothers me particularly, as you know, Scott. Like, plot holes and logic failings and stuff. But in this film, I just wasn't particularly feeling that. I don't know. It's, it did feel more like the character's disbelieving at first, but when he's like, even when he's sort of giving good advice by. Natural Vigalondo's character and things mm. and like I can see why he, he doesn't follow through and then finds out the inevitability of it later yeah because that's how humans are you know it's like you know you know if you keep in, um, doing that thing or smoking or whatever you're going to get cancer. yes yes I know but I don't actually my mind right at the moment is not actually believing that that potential hmm. future thing might happen yeah and it's like that but just a hugely compressed time frame yeah and I just I just thought it was a very, very successful thing because it has... It's almost like you can just see that he's doing these things with at least initial good um, intent. Yeah. And then it just... Everything's going wrong. I and mean, then you understand that it's going wrong because it has to go wrong because it's already going wrong for it to go wrong. And time travel <laughs> films are really hard to talk about. We need lots of new tenses. <laughs> uh, but then at the same time, it's... I think what's interesting about it too is it's so revealing of character because he seems like a fairly decent, normal guy at the start. You don't think mm. he's really good or bad. It's like, here's a guy. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, if that was me, I wouldn't be looking at the naked woman through the binoculars. I'd have stopped. But at the same point, he wasn't, he hadn't sought her out to do that. It's like, he was at the edge of the property. He sees this woman. He looks at her for maybe a minute longer than he be ought to. People have done worse things and he wasn't in, tending harming her Hmm. Uh, and then the other things he does like you see you see we see them start the timeline start to tie together and and you see the red van you're like oh right okay so I know how that Hmm. thing happened and his actions you can understand it's like and you see how they go wrong um and what he was trying to do but it just didn't work for this other reason it's okay but then and it's why I think it worked for me that he was putting the trench coat and stuff on because there's clearly something, clearly the wheels are turning under his, um, in his mind. He, he's got some intelligence here because okay, like, okay, I recognise this coat. I know what I have to do. I know where I am now. Because then he starts doing the rather, frankly, evil things towards the end. And that kind of really reveals that he's not as good a person as you think he might have been and he hoped he was. Yeah, um, and I just kind of. I thought it was fairly consistent. That it, I mean, it, it slowly reveals the characters. That's reveals the characters' character. That does not sound <laughs> good. That is not a pleasant sentence. But I can't think of a better way to put that. But it it kind of felt consistent, which is what I really liked about it. It's like there wasn't any sort of huge jump in change change in personality or anything like that and I just, I always found the thing really satisfying that it just, it built in such a way I said for the, the first half of the film I was like, mm, I mean I can follow this fine and, but it's, eh, I guess it's there it's okay, but then it's like, building sort of becoming more thriller-like and it's like, oh, now I'm getting this this film's really building for me and I just find that a really rewarding watch
1: Yeah, I mean on its own terms I like it and it was, I still got drawn into it and enjoyed it it's just, on reflection I don't I don't think it holds an awful lot of water when it's really based around the, the tenets of these things have to happen because they have happened. It doesn't need to. I don't think it needed to. And I think there's an awful lot of weight being placed on that one scene where the director is you know, explaining things with an arrow, going back to another <laughs> arrow. And basically that that is the load-bearing component of his entire actions, and I don't think a a 30 second sketch on a drawing board is enough to really maintain that. Um, oh, sketch is a stretcher. It's, yes. it's basically a line. Yeah. That
0: scene bothered me a bit because I'm like, you're not explaining this in the correct direction. But okay.
1: <laughs> but look, if nothing else, this presents a rare instance of Chekhov's flat pack side table. And for that, <laughs> it should be applauded. <laughs> I mean, of all the things this film thought it needed to set up, why it needed to set up the presence of a table in a house (laughs) is beyond me, given that you're talking about time travel. I would have gladly accepted that houses are a thing that normally contain tables. (laughs)
0: um, It's definitely my second favourite Chekhov's item um, in this podcast, because my favourite Chekhov's item was clearly Chekhov's... a magic futuristic dish detergent from yes. <laughs> I'll wake up uh, tomorrow I'll wake up and scold
1: myself with tea because that was yes. fantastic yes. in the future all your dishes will dissolve eh? okay
0: <laughs> with mild green Chekhov's your liquid <laughs> yeah.
1: yes but I I, 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 I liked uh, Timecrimes quite a bit and I would still recommend anyone watch it I uh, thought it was quite enjoyable and I got quite involved into it so yes give that a bash
0: and it's also it's probably worth pointing out to. It's another film that we're covering today that, again, compared to one film in particular, this is an enormous budget, but, you know, made for two and a half million dollars. It's not Mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. Um, And most of the films we're covering this don't have a high budget. Sci-fi is, yeah, it can, and I'll come back to this later, can lend itself to really high budget stuff, but also a really interesting sci-fi premise can be done Without a lot of work, without a lot of budget. Mm-hmm. And this podcast is going um, kind to of shown that over and over, I feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: shall we move on to Japan, Scott? Yes. With the girl who leapt through time and... In this we find Makoto, voiced by Risa Naka, who seems to be in most respects an ordinary teenage girl. She muddles through school adequately enough, plays baseball with her best friends, the dependable Kazuki and the more flighty Chaki. Uh, Mundanity continues until one day while riding her bike, Makoto's brakes fail and contrived to engineer an unfortunate train-flesh interface that by rights should have killed her if she hadn't reflexively jumped back in time to that morning. Upon discovering this handy skill, at least after a short period of understandable shock and surprise, she uses these powers to, well, have a better, less death-filled day, mainly, seeing as not dying is a low bar. She (laughs) goes further, uh, seeking to avoid pain and embarrassment to her friends and herself, while she attempts to engineer a better day for all of her friends, while avoiding the changes to the interpersonal relationship status quo as far as possible. As is usually the case when meddling with this sort of thing, changing one small event may lead to many unanticipated changes elsewhere that seems to continually hamper her efforts. Indeed, the whole time-travelling gimmick is little more than a hook to hang, what is, for the most part, a melancholy explanation of friendships, love, and missed opportunities as the dynamics of the main trio's friendship changes in various ways for various reasons. Uh, The take-home message seems to be that change is inevitable, and even if you could head back in time, you can't stop it marching right back on again. Now, I liked this film a lot, a decade or so ago, and haven't really thought about it all that much since. However, I'm happy to report that it holds up just as well on a second viewing. Uh, the characters are still all utterly charming, and the film has an endearing sense of understatement. Indeed, one of Makoto's main reasons for returning in time appears to be to prevent her sister from stealing her pudding. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, Also, because, she not to say that she's, you know,
0: wasteful of her ability to jump through time, but she seems to want to enjoy that pudding- you know, like a good dozen times. It's <laughs> a <laughs> nice pudding.
1: So uh, the characters all feel quite real and restrained, apart from a understandable but Ill- ill-advised ramping up of the cheese and saccharine levels towards the end of the film to attempt to give a dramatic emotional punch that feels a little bit out of keeping with the rest of the film. Uh, Also, whoever was given the job of animating tears needs to back off the drama just a (laughs) smidgen, given how wildly out of place it looked in an otherwise beautifully animated and drawn piece of work. Um, If it has an outright flaw, it's actually the time-travelling mechanism itself. While it's an inexplicable MacGuffin, it's fine, but the actual explanation for it is well, a bit of a stretch and really quite dull to have explained to you. Uh, So for... But for me at least, there's enough goodwill built into the hour and 20 odds before that occurs to excuse the last 10. As I thought about a decade or so ago, yes. A really great film from Madhouse, who were the studio responsible for the similarly excellent Metropolis and uh, Perfect Blue. And also Wicked City, but they can't all be winners. Uh, gotta love that tentacle
0: rape. <laughs> uh, the less about Wicked City, the better though, I think. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually have a lot to add to this, Got from what you've said, I... A decade ago? I think we must have covered it on our old podcast. I'm sure I remember talking about it.
1: I at the very least wrote a review of it because that's what I gripped quite heavily from in that little recap there.
0: Uh, Uh. Yes, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I enjoy it thoroughly now. Um, Yeah, it's just... it's one of those time travel things that has something similar to... It's not quite the butterfly effect because it's a bit less... Distantly Dumb. connected to that fellow. Awful. <laughs> I, I mean the butterfly <laughs> effect. I suppose disgusting. As, <laughs> I mean the butterfly effect as in the theory, not the terrible oh. Ashton Kutcher vehicle. <laughs> but thanks for bringing that back because I, I, what I really needed to remember in this moment was Ashton Kutcher looking down at his stump arms. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, whatever that attempt at acting was he did in that thing. Um, the only good thing that came out of the butterfly effect was Ethan Supley as the weird goth guy because I like Ethan Soupley a lot and I just find that character ridiculous and funny. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, like not quite so detached is the idea of the butterfly effect. Again, not the Ashton Kutcher film. Let's just <laughs> get that clear now. But the idea of, of consequences of even a small change to a person's life or to the way you interact with someone has so many knock on effects. Hmm. Um, and I just think that's quite interesting. It's, I mean, Some of these, in this film in particular, are quite extreme, you know. The idea that swapping places with someone in the home economics classroom will lead to that person getting beaten up and then going mental with a fire extinguisher and <laughs> yeah. nearly killing a teenage girl. You know, That may be going a bit far. Yeah. But the idea that, that people's lives are interconnected and that you can't just without thinking, do things, change people's lives without their consent. Yeah. Um, and I just find that quite interesting because I think, yes, not to the degree that happens in this film, I think if this technology existed, you could affect so many people so easily without doing an awful lot. Yeah. And it's, so therefore it just comes about the, f- the time travel is more just a way to show, show people, you know what, maybe you should really think about other people. You know, and affect yeah. you having people's lives and things. I just think it's a nice um, sentiment.
1: In, in many ways it's a, a sort of more general explanation of if you're optimising for one thing, you, it's always going to affect anything else. Yes. You know, it's, to, it's going to be to the detriment of other things and whether that's your own happiness at the expense of others or everyone else's happiness at the expense of yours, then that's a, a good way of... Uh, it's as broad a canvas to draw that on as any, um, and it does it quite well. It does help, I think, in this regard the, the, the characters don't have any massive goals. They're not. They're not trying to change the course of history or anything like that. They're just. They're in any sort of grand, overarching way, uh, not dying, of course. I suppose is <laughs> a bit of a, a bit of a carrot uh, rather than a stick.
0: I do like though the fact that the character is, I suppose, innocent is quite a good word because she. She doesn't want to do anything like, you know, make a buck in the stock market or yeah kill someone or cause someone to fall in love with her. Although she does the opposite of that, she tries to avoid yeah. such a thing. <laughs> she's just, because she's like, I don't want, this you know, sounds nasty I don't mean like, but like, she's kind of a frivolous high school girl. Like many people of both genders or any gender are in high school, you know, people like, don't really think about things. like But she's using this pair of for such frivolous stuff. Like the pudding thing, that kind of amuses me. You know, she's got no malice in her, but she's got no great ambition either. It's like, yeah. well, I can jump through time. Well, I can have this breakfast twice. Like, I, don't, <laughs> I don't really fancy what we're having for dinner tonight. I want to go and have the dinner we had two nights ago again. <laughs> That's kind of nice that she's used it for such silly things. Um, but then again, then it still explores the idea that, you know, even something as simple as that. Can affect people's lives in ways you'd maybe not realize. Yeah, it's just it's a charming film. It's really nicely animated. I could maybe do with a wee bit less of the kind of mopey high school teen romance stuff, but that's a, a fairly minor part of. I don't. I'm not that bothered by that. Just yeah. But yeah. Other than that, it's very much one I would recommend.
1: Yes, which is a thankful. It's good that we're getting a, a fairly decent hit rate of this so far, um, but will it continue with our next film, which I'm going to pronounce Primer, because that's how we do it here. I, I've heard it Primer.
0: Yeah, which is, but when <laughs> we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, I was pronounced it Primer, and I don't know why, because I had, I just heard like Primer, like in a sort of mass context, being called that by academics and stuff.
1: I think it's an Americanism,
0: rather not. I assume so, but then also... Yeah. It's primer as in, you know, the starting of something or like detonator mm. cord and stuff and explosions <laughs> and stuff. It's that primer. So it is primer. So yes, we're calling it primer. And I, I don't know why I was doing that earlier. So we're going to come right back to what I was mentioned a couple of films ago. While science fiction films can often be massively budgeted, effects heavy monoliths, it is also possible to create a very effective film with not much more than a clever idea and a simple in terms of technique and effects, execution, and certainly without a lot of money. And just how little money? Well, in the case of Shane Carruth's lo fi debut feature primer, about $7,000. You know, so in film terms, that's not money. That's barely the biscuit um, yeah. budget for most <laughs> films, you know. It is frankly miraculous, especially given that it was shot in colour for comparison. That's about one tenth of the cost of Darren Aronofsky's monochromatic pie shot more than half a decade earlier. Mm. But Karath's extremely careful storyboarding, almost unfeasibly low shooting ratio of two to one, and the skeleton crew, with him taking on multiple jobs himself, nearly uh, more or less all of the jobs himself allowed him to produce this gem that grossed nearly $850,000 at the box office. And that's not a bad return for (laughs) $7,000. Four friends, all employees of various tech firms, work in their spare time out of a suburban garage in Dallas, early Apple style, taking turns to try to develop different technologies in the hope of making it rich. Two of these friends, Abe and Aaron, collaborate on creating a machine that will reduce the mass of an object, in the first case, a Weeble, Weebles wobble, but they don't weigh much, placed within the field it creates. It works, sort of, but like many of the greatest discoveries, the inventors aren't entirely sure at first how it works, and they're certainly even more perplexed when they discover they seem to have inadvertently created a time machine. Weebles wobble, but they fall through time. It takes not long until they decide that the smarter thing to do is to scale up and try sending something slightly smarter than a Weeble through time to wit themselves and while they begin with the obvious things of using future knowledge to make gains in the stock market, and they at least attempt to avert paradoxes and the like, it isn't long until things go wrong and weird. <laughs> this one is pretty strong sci fi stuff. And I think I first saw this maybe anyway, seven or eight years ago. And I'm pleased to find I enjoy it just as much then as I did now. I'm also as massively confused then <laughs> now as I was mm-hmm. then. Even knowing what happens in this film, I've, I still wasn't entirely convinced of what was happening at any given point in this film. Yeah. <laughs> but I kind of liked that because this is a film which, I mean, I'm honestly, I completely lost back because I, because I was giving the film the attention it deserved. This is absolutely not one of those, you know, just sit back and let it wash over you type of films. You have to pay attention to it. And not everyone is willing to do that, unfortunately. But I think if if you're willing to give it that sort of attention, it's really rewarding. It's, and it's remarkable that a film like this can be made in $7,000. It is willfully convoluted in places. And that is a deliberate choice on the part of the director. He wanted to have some of the audience's confusion mirror the confusion of the characters because for large parts of it, they have no idea what's going on because they don't really know what they made, how they made it or how it works, just that it works. (laughs) And it's actually kind of interesting too because as well as being a time travel science fiction film, it also has a wee bit of a kind of believable look at how inventions get made and that people don't really always know what they're doing. Mm. How many storied inventions and discoveries have come about purely by accident. On a second viewing, some of the the mysteries hinted at during it don't work quite as well, because you know and I remember what happened, but still it's quite... a lot of the twists are quite unexpected. And I don't know, it's, it's definitely not a film for everyone, this. It is... Difficult to follow, requires a lot of concentration, but I just find it really, really rewarding. I like this film a lot, which is one of the reasons I was so disappointed by his follow-up upstream colour because I despise that film so much. Mm. Uh, but I find that for, this is a first-time film made on basically no money at all with a crew of about four people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's remarkable and it's one of the most... Well, it's not rewarding, it's not quite the word I want to say. One of the most satisfying, interesting and different time travel films I've ever seen. And it's not like most other things. I mean, there are, th- lots of time travel films have paradoxes and stuff, but this one feels like it approaches in a very different way from a lot of others. Mm-hmm. But this is where you tell me you hated it, Scott.
1: I mean, I, I would probably recommend it based on my remembrance of watching it first time round, which was when I got to the end of it, I thought, that was really confusing, but I liked it. (laughs) Um, And I thought... I'm not going to read anything about this film. I'm going to watch it again and get to the bottom of it. And then I never did. And then, <laughs> and then, I, got to, and then I watched the Upsume Colour and I went, nope, yeah. <laughs> checking out of this entirely. Um, so this was the first time I revisited it and I enjoyed it much less this time round. I'd remember it being puzzling all the way throughout and it's actually not. I mean, the whole first hour of this is filler. I mean, it's it's well presented in a sort of technical way, and uh, okay, maybe if you're interested in the sort of discovery of inventions that kind of thing, you might find get some joy out of it. I don't think I did second, certainly not second time around. I thought it was just uh, filler. Um, it's just an hour of techno babble. Um, well, that's more grounded in science than other <laughs> other comparable works, probably yes, but it still <laughs> doesn't really make any difference what I think, it crucially, it doesn't do at any point in that hour is really get into the depths of any of the characters. And I think that's more noticeable this time round, because when you, when I watched it the second time round, I was trying to find some sort of motivations for the things that were happening in the last 20 minutes, half an hour, sort of thing. And I don't think it really present, presented a case for that in any real regard. So that was a little bit disappointing, and then when it gets to the last half hour where things go sideways on a number of levels it It still didn 't make a lot of sense to me, and then doing a lot of digging i, I, I now i 'm now convinced that it 's actually just pulling things from its ass you know when it starts talking about oh no actually what happened was there was another copy that went back another time round because they found another machine that was hidden in a different, another location in the fourth backup location it 's like th- this is just nonsense now is it 's taken its it 's taken its premise a little bit too far and if you did actually accurately map out everything that happens on it it's just a whole bunch of nonsense um it's all internally consistent nonsense i'll give it that it all <laughs> it all works within the frames of its rules that it's setting up but i don't know when you introduce the the fourth version of something going through i think it's just getting a little bit too willfully daft you know it it all works but some of the events that happen at the end i don't think are ever really explained for me in a meaningful character way in the first hour and I found that a little bit Uh, disappointing on a second run through so I I was not rewarded by going back to this again, however I will I can say that if you haven't seen this already and you're in the market for this sort of thing, on that first view I was actually very uh, intrigued and was largely where you are with it now more or less, so I I, I would still recommend it, but for me going back to it, it actually (laughs) diminished the experience greatly Um, but that doesn't stop anyone watching it first time round
0: I think possibly I even found it more rewarding the second time around, certainly no less. And because I was thinking more about the implications of what had happened. I, was I paying, shall fight you. <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking more about the implications too. And I was like paying a bit more attention to the dialogue this time. Because I know the, the basic premise so I could pay more attention mm-hmm. to that sort of thing. Um, and what just made me regret was that it wasn't some sort of payoff scene that was the, because really in the end it feels like there should have been a room like in the Prestige. Yeah. Because basically, you get the idea when they start talking about what happened at the party, mm-hmm. the incident at the party with the the ex boyfriend, and I thinking, yeah, that's the way he's talking. That this person hasn't just done this once. Mm. I've done it lots of times, so like how many times has it been through? And it's like, so it's kind of a bit somewhere between Groundhog Day and what you would have to, um, what Hugh Jackman's character had to do in the prestige. Mm. And I'm thinking that's actually kind of dark. And I wish there'd been a payoff to that because that's the way it's like, um, you start realizing what that character's talking about. It's like, okay, to, to get the outcome that Abe thinks has happened. Mm. This has gone through so many iterations and that just means that there's a lot of rats in the attic. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, um, whereas the end of the film is like... I Honestly, that's the one thing. I'm not sure if I like the end of the film or not because I know what this person... I know who this person is. It's the person who's doing the voiceover from the beginning and... They're making a giant one, but why? Yeah, I, thought, I, don't, I don't know if that's meant to deliberately be a mystery. It's like, what, what's the what's the end game of this? I want to know. Um <laughs> But maybe that's deliberate. It's, it's supposed to just pique your curiosity and not do anything more. And I thoroughly enjoyed Primer both times I've watched it, but in slightly different ways because I, I had came away with a different feeling about it the second time.
1: Yeah, so did I, but it didn't really <laughs> help matters. <but ours. laughs> On this time, you and it just feel like felt like one of the characters has gone from a normal guy to a sociopath off camera, (laughs) without really explaining a great deal of it. And I don't know that maybe there's some satisfaction in um, coming out with your own story as how that happened through through the various machinations that the film presents. But for me, it kind of (laughs) didn't. Yeah, I wasn't I was not that invested in it this time round.
0: I I thought some of that was explained, but um, Well actually, I think it is explained because. They do talk about basically if you come out of the box too early, it's going to fry your brain a bit. And that character does come out of the box slightly too early. Whereas the there's another character who the determines come out too early as well, and his brain's toast. So I know it's just that, that 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 affected the person, therefore affected the decisions. So, mm. I'm trying to talk around this because I really think it's best yeah. watched without knowing too much about it. Uh, but it's quite hard without, without just, like, saying what happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, this, I think this film as well as the film we're going to finish with is the one that perhaps is the one best left undocked about in terms of specifics um, to yeah. get the most enjoyment out of it. But it does make talking about it very difficult.
1: Even with my comments, as though as I say, for if you've not seen it at all, it's definitely worth watching. I, get, I can't give it an enthusiastic recommendation this time <laughs> round, but I still do have to uh, recommend it, given one my first instance, I enjoyed it quite a lot. Okay, so let's move to Europe in the 1960s then. Let's do that. Yes, we are talking now about Jetem Jetem. This is a film by Alain Rinaud, which who we spoke about in our, or at least his first two films in our Left Bank episode back in May 2016. How time flies. And incidentally, somewhere between this episode and our next, uh, marks our three year anniversary. So hooray for us. Um, and We're also. We are old! <laughs> yes, I was going to say, it closes in on uh, almost 11 years of us podcasting and longer doing f- text reviews on websites uh, when you include our previous form in on the oneliner.com. So I am going to book myself in for a hip replacement to beat the rush. Yeah, uh, I'm
0: going to take the task. <laughs> uh,
1: so anyway, skipping two films and seven years from last year at Marion Bad brings us to GTM MG. Time, wherein Claude Rich's Claude Ritter leaves hospital after an unsuccessful suicide attempt. Obviously, if he left after a <laughs> successful suicide attempt, it'd be a very different films. genre we're talking about. Yes. He's approached by a representative of a presumably secret organisation to take part in a time travel experiment as a guinea pig, presumably because he's already shown something of a disregard for his own life. Uh, still, it worked with mice, or at least a mouse, for a minute, so it's probably ready for prime time, right? So, Claude is led to a country estate where, after some general, largely dispensable uh, exposition, he enters what i will call the time egg. And (laughs) he switches throne with the intent of moving him uh, in time by one minute. It doesn't work. At least, not as intended. Elaine goes on a magical mystery tour throughout his relationship with his chronically ill, seemingly clinically depressed girlfriend, Olga... Olga George Peacott's Katrine flying through his memories on shuffle play with a dizzying succession of edits that is as disorientating for the audience as it must be for Claude. Through the course of an hour or so we uh, uncover a picture fuzzy as it is of Claude's life and the decisions that led to him attempting to kill himself. Now Your mileage will will vary, of course, and like Marion Bad, it's sophistication through obfuscation rather than any genuinely challenging narrative, but it turns out that I continue to be a complete sucker (laughs) for Strikes. It's got some solid character work in it, and its narrative is presented in in, in an interesting way. It'd be remiss of me to point out that the actual narrative, when defragmented... It isn't all that complex or the final reveal of what drove Claude to desperation uh, wasn't really all that affecting. Sad for him, and his girlfriend of course, and for us if you want him, but not. it wasn't in a, a powerful emotional gut punch or anything that I think it was hoping to be, certainly the way it was presented, it was I think intended to be more impactful than it actually wound up being. Also I suppose on reflection, this is a time travel film in the loosest sense only, and <laughs> it's, really just, that. <laughs> yeah, it's really just a, a mechanism for a fractured narrative that these days would probably just be presented fair complete does that mean it's here under false pretences well it was either this or time cop so count your blessings it's easy to be, sound a little bit dismissive of this, but I quite enjoyed this. Not as much yeah. as something like last year at Marion Baden. I, I think we have very different opinions of that. Um, so for me, this film was good, uh, but not great. So it sort of edged towards it on occasions, and I found the uh, the narrative and the, the fracturing of it quite engaging in a way that, that normally annoys me. Um, this is a trick that's been tried in a number of films after this, and I've found most of them annoying. <laughs> um, this one, not so much, I think, because it is so dis cordon is is trying it's it's not quite brechtian but it's certainly trying to put you on edge with a lot of the ways a lot of it's editing a lot of it's tricks and a lot of it's cuts yeah it's like i don't want to diminish it but it's it's a gimmick of a film but i think it's a gimmick that works pretty well now if i recall correctly we we don't really see eye to eye on this Renault re- guy so um yeah do, do you have any any contradicting opinions
0: <laughs> uh, first of all i would like to say that i was thinking a lot about last year at marion bad through this and to be honest, I can't really remember what I thought about that film. I remember that I said I didn't like it, <laughs> but I don't yeah. remember why. I, and I, can, <laughs> I can picture the film quite clearly, I, can, I at least a, a series of still images. Mm-hmm. But I honestly don't really remember how I felt about it anymore. I do remember thinking, yes, this does feel like it does owe something to the French New Wave. I mean, it's a bit more conventional than a lot of those films were. Not narrative style of editing, but in other mm. ways. And certainly it's, there's some really dodgy dubbing going on, at least in the early stages. Yeah. As opposed to onset set audio. But I was thinking, you know, at least it's not breathless. Yes. Um, yes. A film where we do see eye to eye because it's yeah. terrible. Um, <laughs> strange, it's a shiny example of the you Wave, but it's an appalling film. Appallingly <laughs> made, but okay. With an appalling person. Uh, this is... I don't know. I honestly don't know whether I like this or don't like it. <laughs> and I've been thinking about it since I saw it. Certainly, I very much agree with you, Scott, that it's, it's a stretch to call it a time travel film. Yeah. That it's not really... It didn't go where I thought it was going to go when it began like that. It is... I don't know, I mean, the, the whole film's made in the editing. Yeah, um, yeah. And the editing is really, really good. Because you can... While it's like, you know, it's jumping from time to time and like, different things are happening each time, you can follow it absolutely. And it could have been so easy to just make a complete mess of that.
1: Yeah. So the editing is really good. While at the same time being enough of a mess to get, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's very deliberate in what it does. Yeah. Yeah, it's,
0: it's strange because, it, yeah, it's absolutely not a time travel film. It's basically someone reliving their memories. Yeah. It's more like a dream than a time travel film. Yes. But. Again, I mean, I found my attention wandering every now and then, but I certainly don't think I was bored by it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was slightly mystified by it. person. I was slightly mystified by Claude de Rich's character because, like, how many women does he have? And could you please <laughs> explain to me, the audience member, how he's able to retain all of these women when he yeah. doesn't seem to have <laughs> an awful lot of personality? Um <laughs> But yeah, it's interesting. I was like, okay, yeah, right. What's I? I just find myself engaged enough. Like, okay, when, can we get cut to the bit that's going oh No, please go on. Cut to the bit. The explain. No, oh, no, explain. Tell me. I was like, I was hooked in that way that I wanted to just understand what the cause of this was. And certainly, it wasn't the. It wasn't an emotional gut punch. You're right, Scott. Mm-hmm. Whether they intended for that to be or not, I don't know. Um, it was just a tragic accident, but... Uh,
1: yeah, I just... Uh, given the timing of the reel and where it was, it kind of felt like it was sort of trying to build towards something to give you to... Uh, some kind of go-home moment. It didn't really... It was just another moment in a series of them.
0: And I think, to be honest, by that point, I was completely distracted by the fact that it was supposedly happening in Glasgow. Yes. And then there's the, <laughs> um, There's one... There's, like two, well, there's two scenes with police officers. The first one is... in, in The scene is in English... But it's clearly Belgian or French. It's listed in IMDb is a French film, but it's shot in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not quite sure which it is. But yeah, there's this, the first scene with the police and they're it's in English, but it's heavily accented English. And then you find <laughs> out shortly after that this is meant to be in Glasgow. And I, right, okay. And then the second <laughs> police scene later on, it's like, they're not even trying. They're just speaking <laughs> in French now. Um but they have forgotten to even try, because they tried an English accent in the earlier scene and then they're, they're, they're forgotten by the time they come in to shoot the second scene, I guess. But uh, And to us, I was more distracted by that than what was actually happening at that point. Was like,
1: mm,
0: yeah. um, because to be honest, I mean, I like Glasgow a lot and I like a lot of people from Glasgow, but they're talking about having gone on a f- presumably romantic holiday to Glasgow in the 1960s. And I'm, really? <laughs> <laughs> really, really? Really? <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, but 1960s, okay, Pfft, right, okay. Um, <laughs> Come see our poverty and pollution. <laughs> I mean, I guess all that sunshine, sunshine, the sunshine, and the French beaches will get to you after a while, and <laughs> drizzle will sort you out. But um, I, I can see this film testing people's patience a lot. Yeah, um, so it's definitely not for everyone. I enjoyed it more than I re- and I don't really strongly remember my feelings now. Uh, but I remember enjoying. I think you remember enjoy ugh, no, I can't speak. Enjoyed this more than I remember enjoying last year at Marion Bad. <laughs> but this film's actually made me want to go back and revisit that to see if I appreciate it more on a second viewing. I feel like I've l- rambled on all lot without saying anything of consequence. It's it's a hard film to talk about though, because it's it's like it's kind of. Basically, a person's fractured memories and sort of trying to explain what went wrong in his life, but Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced it actually does that.
1: I mean, it's such a deliberate muddle. If if you'd watched this and said, I hate this film, I wouldn't really have any (laughs) counter-argument for it, because it's... As you say It's more like a dream It's like someone Explaining their dream to you Which um, Is Not normally something That most people Would like to hear But in this instance For me It sort of works But I could quite easily Have had the other reaction And Or try to think of other films That have done something similar More recently like um, Babel or something like that Where it's Attempted sort of Roughly similar sort of fractured narratives and trying to combine things in strange ways, and it just has fallen flat in its face. It's not the most direct comparison, but there is, there's some thematic, I guess, similarity there. But I've seen a number of these films where they tried something, try to weave something similar from from its context. That yeah hasn't worked in the slightest and I've absolutely loathed, but this one I just didn't. I quite enjoyed it, and I, I don't really have any good backups for, for that opinion other than this is just how I felt. So if you feel the way I feel, then <laughs> you if know. you are
0: also Scott,
1: yes, you will find this film rewarding. Well, we'll always do these podcasts with a target audience is my in the mind, and the target audience is me. So I think this has been incredibly helpful. <laughs> this
0: is the only film in this podcast that I wouldn't recommend. <gasps> At the same time, though, I wouldn't necessarily warn anybody off of it. <laughs> I think there's enough here that, of interest for certain people to get something from this. It's very oh, it's very much not one for everybody, though.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, apparently, this has been regarded as an influence on Michel Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Yeah, and I can see that. In some ways, although curiously, uh, and maybe I'm just completely misremembering this film because I've not seen it since it came out the cinema. But it actually made me think more of Gondry's "The Science of Sleep." Hmm. Parts of it, anyway. Parts Hmm. of the feeling of it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense as well. But again, it's I've only I've not seen the science, despite having on the DVD obviously because that's what I do. I I buy the films and I don't watch them because I'm not weird. (laughs) I've not seen The Science of Sleep since it came out at the cinema, but it, it made me think of that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, less horses, of course, but yeah, there's... It's, I don't like it, but I also don't not like it. Um, <laughs> you could ask me in two different days and I could probably give you a very different answer about whether or not I like this. Yeah. I mean, again, the fact that I feel like that and we can talk about it in that way suggests maybe it's worth watching. I yeah. really don't
1: know what to make of this film. <laughs> and isn't that the greatest gift of all? No, Scott, the greatest
0: gift of all would would be my own aircraft carrier, um, or super yacht.
1: (laughs) Really, you need more imagination. (laughs) All right, I'll get it on your Christmas list. All right, shall we crash on? Run, Lola, run? Okay, uh, there are a great many different takes on time travel. Some less
0: conventionally time-travelly than others. Like, for instance, Je t'aime, je t'aime. One other such is Tom Teakvers' Lola Rent, Run, Lola, Run, which opts for the time loops until you get it right approach of Groundhog Day, albeit a massively shortened version of Phil Connors' Karmic Purgatory. And yes, I know I'm mixing religions here, but I feel pretty confident that that description, Karmic Purgatory, works. (laughs) Uh, Though, in both films, time travel is kind of irrelevant because it becomes a case of love winning out. Franca Potenta's Lola and... Moritz Blybdrow's Manny are a young couple who do, <laughs> do low-level work for a criminal gang, but Manny in particular is looking to move up and is being trusted with a large sum of money as a test. Not his lucky day then, when Lola, who is to collect him after the deal, has her moped stolen and never arrives. Forced to walk a long distance and then get subway, a stressed Manny panics when he sees security guards enter the train, and flees, leaving behind the bag with the money, which is found by a homeless man. Manny phones Lola to tell her that he's in trouble. It's no biggie, really. You know, except for the part where he needs to find 100,000 Deutsche Mark in the next 20 minutes or the gang boss will kill him. (laughs) That aside, it occurs to him that it would be a spiffing idea to rob the supermarket across the road from the phone booth he is in, For some reason, Manny believes a supermarket will have that sort of money by midday. (laughs) But Lola pleads with him not to. Manny gives her an ultimatum. If she is not there by 12, which is in only 20 minutes, then he's going in. A frantic Lola desperately tries to think of ways in which she can obtain that much money and reach Manny in time, and begins by going to see her bank manager father. A kinetic run through and around Berlin ensues, and we see glimpses of how the lives of those who cross Lola's path play out after their encounters, and it's all accompanied by a now painfully mid-90s techno soundtrack. (laughs) Lola's attempt to reach Manny doesn't end well, and, well, Lola dies! Which is, you know, unexpected 30 minutes into the film. (laughs) But she's not ready to give up just yet, and it seems the universe is willing to give her another chance. So, miraculously... She finds herself back in her house, taking Manny's call. Another two sprints to the German capital follow, with some subtle and some not-so-subtle differences that proceed from things as simple as a delay of a few seconds, and the deliberate actions of a blind woman who seems to know far more than she possibly could. <laughs> I've not seen Lola Rent since... James, when did this come out? 20 years ago. Probably about 19 years then. <laughs> And I remember really liking it at the time, so it's another one that those films that had a bit of trepidation about going back to. And fortunately, I still really like this film. It's very much one of those ones that's quite loosely time travel based, but possibly yes. a bit more strongly than Jutem time Because it does, as I said, it does have that f- kind of groundhog day feeling about it. Yeah. The only thing that really bothered me this time was that the pain track the, the pain track well that's accurate actually the pain track because it caused me a lot of pain the soundtrack <laughs> is painfully dated it's exactly the sort of music you'd have expected to hear in train spotting for instance 1986's train spotting it has a very kind of underworld feel about it yeah and i remember liking that very much in the mid 1990s but not so much now it's that dates the film so badly i mean it's not Bad music. I just I don't really care for techno much anymore. And I used to. I used to like techno a lot, Mm -hmm. but it's rather painful. But other than that, I just find it it's a rather pleasingly kinetic film. Without but without having to force that with so many jump cuts that ten years later would have been you know it was be cutting an angle every ten seconds. It's fair to say it's a fairly slight film, though. I have seen lots of suggestions that it's about difference we've seen like predestination and free will and determinism and I'm like really kind of just seems to me like a kind of throwaway wee (laughs) film uh, which I enjoy watching a lot but has precisely zero depth except for perhaps the the blind woman because she doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. Uh, but I just do like the idea that you know if you you know you shout at someone then it maybe affects them in a way that puts their life in one direction yeah and it does that wee bit and I like the change of visual style the, the little inserts of animation then those shots the, of still photographs of what could happen to a person like and then you know one then the, the causality which we were talking about a couple of films ago the causality of you do one thing one case it ends in misery for a person but you know what, another way it ends up that you do a good thing for a person you save their life or it causes two people to end up in a relationship mm-hmm. I just kind of like that and I like the time travel stuff that kind of affects causality. Like, I like the the girl who leapt through time in particular. It is... I can see the music putting people off, though. Again, though, I like Primer. This is a film that got me really excited for Tom Teakvir's work, and then I saw Perfume, and... <laughs> yeah. Tom Teakvir's dead to me because I hate Perfume so much. Um, <laughs> but I still find... I'm glad to find I go back to Lola Rent and still really enjoy it.
1: Yeah, I think maybe he's redeemed himself a little bit in my eyes by his... More late, uh, later collaborations with the Wachowskis for things like Sensei and Cloud Atlas, which have, have their own failings, believe me. But they're the least yeah. ambitious, and Cloud Atlas they're certainly is certainly really much better than Perfume. Yes, <laughs> um, I i have not seen this somehow. I, I'm not sure why. Uh, somebody just hadn't seen this something till the other week. There, um, I like it. It was quite. An, I, it. I don't have much more to say about it You've, you've covered pretty much everything I was going to say there. Um, I think it's got quite a few little nice sound clues to help geographically locate people as it's going through it's sort of split screen running sections and such which worked quite well so it's quite yeah, the, well laid out that way I appreciate that it's a very simple thing but I quite appreciate that
0: The sound design and music are tied pretty well together actually yeah, the, yeah. The, the, also the, the rhythm of the music matches the rhythm of the editing so well yeah. that's particularly well done mm-hmm.
1: and the soundtrack didn't bother me as much because I'm horrendously retro anyway so um <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's really entertaining, and it's only, what, 80 minutes, and it's incredibly pacey, punchy stuff, so yeah. why wouldn't anyone want to watch this Yeah, I, I hardly recommend it, I mean, I don't think there's really a lot to chew on here, as, as you can kind of say, it's a bit fly away, but it's a really enjoyable 80 minutes, so why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you watch it? A good, A good choice, I think. As you say, time travel? Only... Barely I suppose and yeah, if you want sort of a hard science fiction film about the mechanics of time travel this is definitely not your bag No uh, absolutely but, not it yes <laughs> uh, but if you want a fun film uh, and who doesn't then yeah give us a go I mean I will be honest
0: this one I put in because I remembered liking this film a lot and I was like, well oh, that'll be a good mm, excuse cool. to watch it again because I was yes. <laughs> like I don't really remember this being much about time travel, but okay because I found it in several lists of, you know, lesser known time travel films or things like that. And I'm like Yeah. I can make like, it's time travel in the way that Groundhog Day is, but I never really considered Groundhog Day a time travel film that strongly either. But but okay, yeah. it's a good film and I like <laughs> it. <so." laughs> I'll I'll let that one slide. Let's move on to our final film of the evening, Scott. Just predestination.
1: Yes, and we discussed about before recording. It's a tough one to talk about. Considerately, this is best enjoyed by knowing as little as possible going into it. Even something as simple as some curiously oblique character names will prompt a few questions. Uh, I will attempt to fustigate this to the best of my ability, but I think if you want to get the maximum enjoyment from predestination, I would say just stop. Go watch it and return to us. I, uh, I, I will spoilers. I do recommend it. I think it's quite a good film. It's very entertaining. Um, I, I think you would share that opinion, Drew.
0: Oh, very much so. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, So, um, yeah. Consider yourself warned. Um, as I say, I've done my best to keep this general, but I think it's one of those rare films where known as little as possible really does help uh, going into. it.
0: Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's only it's only a four year old film too. Uh, yeah. Try not to spoil things deliberately but we'd like to talk about films sometimes you need to but first it's still a relatively recent film and, and yeah just uh, would like want to recommend this film and
1: you're really going to get so much more out of it knowing as little as possible mm-hmm. So in Predestination we're introduced to Ethan Hawke's character who the credits insist we should call the Barkeep for some reason, uh, shuffling around in the shadows attempting to foil a bombing and partially succeeding, containing the damage to an enclosure built for such duty and his face which wasn't. He scrambles for a device which blasts him back in time to his own time period and one quick Ethan Hawke shaped face transplant later he's back with his boss, Noah Taylor's Mr Robertson and some government time travel agency or other. After recuperating he's given one last job This sort of chrono crime fighting Apparently taking its toll on the mind as well as the body Uh, It's actually the same job That got him into trouble in the first place Find and stop the Fizzle Bomber Who, despite the name, is bombing Buildings with people in them, not Fizzles (laughs) Um, As part Of this uh, work, he's sent The 70s undercover as a barkeeper Where he meets Sarah's snook the unmarried mother, and weasels her life story out of her in what turns out to be another axis of Mr Robertson's plan to hire his own replacement. Convincing her to take this opportunity uh, and along the way enact some vengeance for a previous misfortune that befell her, off the two go, hopping through a convoluted narrative that goes some way to explain why the unmarried mother's life story is so convoluted, but the details of which, again, I will leave to the interested. Now, if you'd asked me what I thought of this as the credits roll, I'd have a much more straightforward answer to you. It's a very engaging piece of work, and perhaps the film on this list that I was most awed by on first view. It often looks exceptionally pretty, even in a very grim industrial setting, and so props must go to the brothers Spearig, or their cinematographer, Ben Ott perhaps, for creating such an arresting movie on, well, not a pittance exactly, but again, it's well below the budget this sort of thing normally requires.
0: $4 million, that's not a lot of money, particularly not in 2014.
1: Yeah, exactly. Ethan Hawke and Sarah Snook both ably work through a complex maximally twisty turning script particularly from a character standpoint and I found both characters quite compelling indeed and uh, combined with a narrative that does a pretty good job of keeping you guessing where it's going most of the time, it's easy enough to heartily recommend that you pop this on your watch list. Then I recommend not thinking about it at all because for me at least the more I think about it the less I like it Um, all those points remain true uh, but the plot is when you think about it nonsense on stills (laughs) I, I can let some extraordinarily unusual things go Um, given the nature of a government agency such as this it could have effectively the perfect knowledge required for parts of this plan but then it becomes baffling that their apparent solution for the stated aim of the agency is quite so indiscriminately (laughs) murdery and that's even given the most generous interpretation of Mr Robertson being some extraordinary puppet master capable of complete manipulation of his agents and circumstances which to my mind is a pretty unsatisfactory sustainable load to bear on, what, his ten lines of dialogue or something. Mm. If we assume instead he's just some random civil servant, well, the plot gets quite a bit less sensible. I I guess all I can say is that even despite mentally picking this apart over the past few days, I really enjoyed watching it and I really enjoyed picking it apart. <laughs> so so I suppose that makes it one of the most thought provoking films I've seen over the past few years. And much like their previous uh Daybreakers film, it's a novel spin on a well trodden formula. So, like I say, pop this on your watch list, um and perhaps don't think about it much either. afterwards, uh, Drew, what do you make of this one? That's all right. I didn't realize that they'd done Daybreakers, but I remember really rather
0: enjoying that. It, it was like yeah, yeah, a vampire film with a difference. I think exactly. it never mm-hmm. really got the attention it deserved. That film,
1: no, very, I was very fond of that. And again, like I say, it's, it, it was a, a, a genre that had been done to death at the time, and it present managed to prevent present a really novel twist on yeah, it that I quite enjoyed. Different. So yeah, and also that stars Ethan Hawke.
0: Uh, yeah, who I like a lot. Yeah. Now I specifically said that you should cover this because I've seen it before mm-hmm. and I thought it was best covered after a first viewing and I remember thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it the first time and really not so much the second time which disappointed me because I enjoyed mm-hmm. it so much. Now, it's not done as well as other films but I did enjoy some of the second view- viewing of where, and frustratingly, I can't remember what it was we talked about recently but I said something similar about a film we covered not so long ago, where that it's a time travel film or a uh, that has some twists, but it's very, very careful with its language. Mm-hmm. That entirely straightforward, ordinary things to say, but then when you understand what has actually happened, yeah, that it takes on a completely different meaning, and mm-hmm. that's really cleverly done because it doesn't give anything away first time through. So I really appreciated that. I do remember watching the first time, and I. I guessed what was going on Pretty early But I don't remember it Diminishing my enjoyment at all
1: No I, There's sort of It sells you a bit of a dummy Because there's There's one twist And well One twist that's Pretty obvious Because Law of conservation of characters there, There's there wasn't really any other option for it, but then there's kind of another twist which is a bit harder to see coming. But I think just because it's so out that it's kind of hard to place into any other more logical framework.
0: I don't, mind, I'm not sure because there's one of the twists I really saw coming. Um, and I think I probably would have seen coming whether I'd watched Red Dwarf or not, yeah. but it is basically <laughs> the Ouroboros episode, but you know, our Rob or Ross, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I enjoyed it. I'm really disappointed. I enjoyed it so much less the second time. I guess because so much of the film is based on its twists. I get, mm-hmm. and they're not stupid. And I guess, but I guessed the twists a fair bit before they appear. But I still, found them quite satisfying. But knowing the twists, then going through the second time, I was kind of looking out for signs and stuff. And there's not. I mean, it's fairly well done, fairly well written. That it doesn't kind of make no sense or anything like that. It's just that, like that kind of that with that mystery taken out of the film, there mm. isn't as much there. The only thing that bothered me both times though was just that the when you find out the identity of the person they're seeking, and I'm like, mm, really? Yeah. That's, but uh, really?
1: Yeah, it's, mm. it's not set up incredibly well on a character basis. Uh, no,
0: it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, sort of they try to explain it away, maybe a bit in the way that the Primer does too, of like basically frazzled brains or something, but um, that's, the, uh, that's the only bit both times I find particularly unsatisfying.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. Is it, it, the, the interpretation I've read sort of says that this was someone else's master plan, and I think that is not something that is sustained by the weight of its evidence that it presents on screen. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, it, it doesn't quite work for, for me on that basis either.
0: But the the rest of it, I mean, again, first time around, I really really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I absolutely recommend watching it once at the very least. And Sarah Snook, I thought was fantastic in it. Like yes. I've, I've seen her in much, and she's um, I've seen her. In a, she's in Steve Jobs. That's a pretty terrible film. Mm-hmm. Um, so a complete aside, but. You know, the film Steve Jobs that doesn't actually in any way explain why Steve Jobs was interesting or different or special. Yeah. <laughs> well, well done, an entire film about a person and you miss what was important about that person. Well done, Mr <laughs> Sorkin. Well done, Mr Sorkin, indeed, you Muppet. <laughs> but yeah, uh, beyond that, she's in... seen in The Dressmaker, a film with a very satisfying end, so I can recommend that. Um, mm-hmm. Not only would you find me recommending Kate Winslet films, but The Dressmaker's good. Uh, but beyond that, apart from a very minor role in Sleeping Beauty. I've not seen her in anything else. Ah, she's great. I'd love to see more of her. Yeah, yeah. Really, really good actor. Ethan Hawke, I like a lot. He's really good at it too. And they, those two carry the bulk of it. There, there really aren't many other people in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Noah Taylor pops up for, what did you say, like 10 <laughs> lines or something as in the full film? Yeah, if, if that. And yeah. he could be anybody, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, not to denigrate his performance he just doesn't really have a lot to perform it's it's Mm a fairly insignificant role Yeah, so it's just those two people together and they carry so much of the film and it's just really really great Uh, their their performances are superb also just uh, it's kind of uh, amusing that it's based on a short story by Robert A Heinlein Mm.
1: (laughs) as are all the best films
0: (laughs) I mean I know that uh (laughs) That not all of his films were particularly faithfully, all of his books were particularly faithfully <laughs> adapted. But still, I wouldn't have immediately guessed it was a Robert Heinlein story. But yes, um, that's not to do with the quality film. I just thought that was interesting. You wouldn't peg this alongside Starship Troopers, would you? No. <laughs> but yes, it's definitely worth a watch one time. True, I'm not. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm still just thinking about. All of the films of Covenas, there isn't a single film that I really didn't like. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, maybe this is the one I'd recommend most, but to be you know, I'd recommend all of them. At least once.
1: Yeah, to very, there's nothing here that I didn't enjoy watching In some level. Uh, some maybe more essential than others. Uh, just looking back at it, I think maybe I've, under- I've underplayed how much I enjoyed uh, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Um, I spoke about that in fairly ordinary hours but it, it's a really really enjoyable work and it might be my favourite out of this list and there's nothing else in this list that we've spoken about that I wouldn't recommend to anyone for the most part Yeah, a good selection, well done Drew Thank you,
0: um, I'd <laughs> like to take more credit for it than I would just pick the ones that sounded really interesting to me but since I've seemed <laughs> to have picked 7 watchable films out of 7 that's a pretty good hit rate so I'll, I'll take that, thank you Scott <laughs> <laughs> I should procure more of these <laughs> Yes, um, Yes, so shall we move on to what some other people had to say about what we covered?
1: Yes, just on that, um... On the Twitters, at Sonic Yoda, who, who's a big fan of The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, and Mamoru Hosod, Hosada's work in general. Like Miyazaki at Ghibli, I think he's an incredible gift for telling personal, intimate stories and in fantastical worlds without losing any of that intimacy. No, I agree completely. Madhouse Studio actually did some work on for animation for Ghibli as well, which I didn't realise until doing a bit of research on this. Uh, did some animation work on uh, My Neighbour Totoro and a few others, which is... Yeah. Yeah, I, I, didn't realise, I didn't realise that stuff was subcontracted by Ghibli at any point. So that's, uh,
0: I know Ghibli okay. actually does subcontracting for other people. I didn't realize it yeah. they've done the way around. Um, yeah, so. If you look at the things that Ghibli's worked on they, they were doing subcontracting for ages. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think I mentioned it in one of our Julie podcasts because they presumably have to do something while they're waiting for me as <laughs> so I could decide which time he's going to retire, you know. Uh, well, moving on from that, Stephen Nelson at Scott's Actor said, my favourite of recent years is Source Code. Really appreciated the setup and execution of its premise. For me, The Terminator is still the godfather of this particular genre. Conversely, I loathed About Time for being sentimental twee in a paradoxical cluster cuddle. Um, Just trying to keep it clean there, Stephen. Uh, Yeah. Source Code, I thoroughly enjoyed. But One of Us, I don't think you, Scott, I think Craig said he didn't think it held up very recently.
1: Craig was saying that recently I think Um, I've not been back to it since watching the cinema but I I heartily enjoyed it at the cinema Uh,
0: The Terminator is a classic we've mentioned why we're not covering that because everybody knows The Terminator Mm -hmm. Um, but it has you know the very classic easy to follow go back in time to change the future sort of thing and about time I am pretty confident you saw that Scott and we've covered it at some point that's the terrible Richard Curtis film which I assume is terrible because it's a Richard Curtis film
1: yes uh, I I referred back to my notes. I I probably liked it more than other Richard Curtis's works, but that's a very low bar. <laughs> that's a very low bar. <laughs> that that is the lowest of all possible bars. Like it's not as bad as Love Actually. Oh well, that's yeah, it's so not well, saying, presumably uh, It also doesn't
0: have <laughs> Bill Nye in it.
1: Yeah, um, well, or does m- it? Maybe it does. I don't know. I actually don't remember. Um, no, it's uh, it's more of a Dom Hall Gleason joint who's <laughs> currently seen stinking up the screens and has General Hux and <laughs> Star Wars films. Yeah, no, that terrible Peter I, Rabbit thing. Well, I, I I certainly agree. It was sentimental and twee. Um, uh, <laughs> don't, yes, no, no, thank you.
0: Yeah, um, Stephen also says "Time Crimes" was a clever little jaunt in the Spanish countryside. It felt like it was an allegory for lying about covering up a lie with another lie. Which I can see, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it doesn't necessarily have to be an allegory for anything. It could work just on its own like as a exploration of a person's character. But yes, it could be seen like that. Yeah. I
1: wouldn't argue with you on that point. It seems like a reasonable reading to me. Let's move on. Our friend at M. Toller, Matt Toller on Twitter. Uh, mm, he's your friend. He's not my <laughs> friend.
0: I'm not going to forget that, or forgive the Dennis Quaid thing, Matt, you monster.
1: What was it with you and Quaid? Just get a room already. Coincidentally, he just bought Time Crimes with the intent to rewatch. Was impressed with how efficiently it showed the danger and confusion associated with even a small jump in time. Uh, Primer's another favourite of his. Same compounding problems story as Time Crimes with a dash of a simple plan still friends with opposing motivations. Love how both of them do a lot with very little in the way of budgets and elaborate sets, which, yes, uh, can we agree? We kind of touched on a few there, there. He gave Ryan Johnson a lot of crap these days over The Last Jedi, which is irredeemably awful. Uh, but he still likes Looper quite a bit, even as time travel movies go. It's nowhere near as airtight plot-wise, but it's got some interesting food-for-thought concepts in play. Am I the only uh, person
0: that liked The Last Jedi? I really yeah, liked that film.
1: Pretty much, yeah. But yes, Looper, we've spoken about it at some point in the past, possibly in the one later. But yes, I think our general opinion was we liked it up until the point magic appeared yeah, and ruined it all. We liked it until it turned into <laughs> Carrie, in which... At which point, it's like, <laughs> nope, thank
0: you, bye-bye. Yeah. Um,
1: but yes, um, Bruce Willis and what's his face? Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, Joseph Gordon-Levitt running around with guns is fine with me, but yes, don't push it to actual <laughs> mental psychic powers. But a bit of a stretch too far. Yes, but yeah. um,
0: yes that's, that definitely didn't work so well for us. Uh, also, um, friend Erica Long, at Erica Long, she of um, Magic Lantern podcast fame, mm-hmm. Uh, simply said, I am a fan of Time After Time, and again, I am going to curse you all day long, Erica, for putting that Cyndi Lauper song in my head. It could have at least been the Goody Steam tune. That's better. But <laughs> Time After Time, for those who don't know, is a nineteen seventy nine film that uh, mixes up H. G. Wells' The Time Machine with Jack the Ripper,
1: starring Malcolm McDowell and, and <laughs> your fellow off The Exorcist, yeah. <laughs> David Warner, or David, the, David Omen the Omen. David uh, Warner's <laughs> <not laughs> in the Omen. No, it's not, it's
0: not. But yeah, but I've not seen myself. But it sounds quite an interesting concept. That there a quote I read from this earlier before Eric tweeted actually, but for someone not at all that this is some social commentary. But Jack the Ripper, the Jack the Ripper character, turns up in 1970 San Francisco and said that basically I was a monster in my time, but here I'm just an amateur. <laughs> <sighs> Scathing. But yeah, that may be one to check out as well. That was quite interesting. Can't be a bit of Malcolm McDowell either.
1: I wonder if he'll give a, a, a characteristically understated performance. <laughs> you no, know, Although it does appear to be a rare instance where Malcolm McDowell's in it and he's not the bad guy. So that's not something that's happened in the past three decades, so that'd be interesting <laughs> if nothing else.
0: <laughs> oh, he's not the bad guy in Mozart in the Jungle. In fact, he's great in Mozart in the Jungle. So, yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> so I can thoroughly recommend him in that. <laughs> as not the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have actually th- I don't know, th- this is a massive tangent but he's actually really funny in Mozart in the Jungle and I never really mm. Malcolm would have really stopped me as a particularly
1: funny actor but no, he's yeah. good Yeah um, <laughs> I mean, he's often accidentally funny in a lot of things but, that's, but yeah, deliberately yeah, on this one Yeah, good We've also had this in from Perpetual Dumb Machine that's at Blake Wrights on Twitter He really enjoyed the storytelling But the closed loop of predestination Never quite set right with him Because it implies a person was born Whole cloth out of space-time for no reason Run, Lola, run She'd need to rewatch, but recalls the animation resets being a little belaboured in the runtime. He also read a review for Primer once that he agrees with that it shows what the invention of time travel would most likely end up like if it were invented by the kinds of people who usually invent new tech. Just in some other time travel films, Groundhog Day is still a really great tight comedy. Same can be said with a nostalgia undercurrent for Back to the Future. As far as action goes The criminally underwatched Edge of Tomorrow Deserves some credit As does a significantly campier Demolition Man And Bill and Ted deserves a rewatch Just for the adult jokes that he may have missed as a child Any anyway, wrap-up with uh, Terminator 2 Probably the best age instalment in the franchise And certainly the most memorable for him And Donnie Darko Which is probably pretty hit or miss with folks But which had a lot of scenes that really endeared him to it From first watch
0: uh, That was our last comment
1: I believe That's your lot well, that brings us to the end of this podcast thank you very much for your attention if you would like to get in touch with us on this or any other subject which crosses your mind please do so Best way is probably on twitter at fudsonfilm although we're also on facebook facebook.com slash fudsonfilm or there's the old email address podcast at fudsonfilm.com so um, we'll be back with you in another 10 days or so but until that time take care of yourself and each other I've been Scott Morris and goodbye and I'm sure Drew Tamdale will join me in that sentiment